It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and joining me as always is Matt Grantham. How are you, mate? Very good, Anthony. Uh, how are you going today? I can't complain, I can't complain. And who do we have today? Uh, today in the studio, we're going to be recapping some of the previous shows we've done, um, looking at energy blockchain platforms and their strategies and overall competitive landscape. And joining us to do that is Wayne Pales, um, who used to work uh, in strategy at AGL and uh, is now a board member of Positive Energy, a, a blockchain-based uh, firm in Singapore and recent author of a book called The Digital Utility, and he joins us today. Hello, Wayne. Yeah, hi. How are you doing? Very good. Wayne, uh, Matt's been a little obsessed with energy in the blockchain <laughs> <laughs> over the last... I, have we talked about anything else, Matt? Uh, no, not really. Um, and so uh, this, this, is, this is a big day for him. We'll this is exciting. Straight up. I couldn't sleep last night. I was so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, so, Wayne, can you just give us a little bit of background, a bit about yourself uh, and the Chapel Group uh, and, and how you ended up getting interested in this sort of um, energy blockchain space? Sure, no problem. So, uh, as, as you mentioned, um, I, uh, I, I've recently authored The uh, the Digital Utility um, and I am uh, running a consultancy called The, the Chapel Group. Been uh, Basically, I um, consult into energy companies uh, across Australia, Southeast Asia, uh, around helping them with their digital uh, digital roadmaps. Uh, I've become, uh, you know, quite heavily interested in blockchain in in recent times, just because of the potential that has for for disruption across the value chain. And so now, really, just looking at how I can help uh, existing energy companies bring in blockchain technologies to their to their business operations. Sure. Um, and uh, in terms of we're really trying to sort of understand this landscape better, the origin of this show, um, Anthony does, is quite right that I am a bit um, bit obsessed with energy blockchain at the moment. Um, there was a recent report came out from uh, GTM and they said there was sort of, you know, about sort of, I think about 122 projects and, and about $500 million US dollars worth of tokens in these economies. Uh, so, uh, you know, and I would argue that maybe 400 million of that probably doesn't know what it's doing. Um, so, so at I, least, at least, at least that amount. Um, so, uh, and, and hopefully from this uh, conversation as well, we're going to get a renewal economy article or two, sort of expanding on some of the the things we're talking about here. Uh, so, so before we get into it, I mean the the framework. Has anyone got any sort of um, views on the state of the blockchain industry in energy generally? Before we get into it, well, I just think that at the moment you, you've kind of hit the nail on the head in terms of there's a lot of there's a lot of investment coming in. Um, a lot of teenagers involved. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of I suppose wild west stuff again. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of potential. Um, there's still a huge amount of issues to iron out with with blockchain technologies before it becomes you know mainstream. Um, and so I suppose that's where we're at at the moment is really trying to understand what are the genuine investments that will make a difference and which ones will kind of fade away. I'll have you know, Matt, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg was a teenager when he invited that's... Facebook. So in 15 short years, yes. we could see one of those guys 
Maybe. you know, being criticised for destroying democracy <laughs> as we know it. <laughs> Indeed. But, yeah, I mean, I just I think it's very interesting that, you know, there's a lot of people and I'm on Telegram that sort of are, you know, really sort of almost like Wall Street traders, um, but with very little knowledge of what is a very highly regulated, Correct. complex uh, regulatory environment that, that uh, there's a lot of money invested here that, that possibly doesn't understand exactly what its risks are. That's so that was sort of the framework for the, the discussion today. Um, uh, GTM have done this stuff and they broke uh, these, they were trying to uh, sort of understand this taxonomy or framework a little bit better, um, breaking it into sort of things like cybersecurity, accounting, the transactive grid, wholesale energy, EV markets and grid flexibility. Um, my 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 uh, approach this was is that I looked at that and I thought that was an interesting framework, but I really wanted to develop a sort of more customer-centric model and, and Anthony and I, I was bang on about this pie chart that we uh, that I always visually draw understanding what these pain points are looking at the generation the retail and the network costs and what bit that any regardless of its blockchain or not which pain point it's addressing in terms of trying to reduce that bill for customers um, and in this one in particular uh, I uh, I looked at this and, and the things that I looked at in the blockchain platform were the generation the retail I also looked at the technology the hardware in the market and um, and it turned out it spelt my name minus the vowels. So right, if yes. we can, <laughs> so if, if we can crowbar a couple of A's in there, we'll have the Grantham Protocol. Um, but so so in terms of this customer, why is that protocol? I mean, oh, yeah, what do you want to call it? Framework business? Yeah, yeah. It's always Look, a some protocol. people want a bridge named after them. Other people want a stadium. I want an esoteric uh, blockchain valuation framework. That's what well, I. That's, that's what I. Be, that's what I aspire to in life. Well, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> what I'll be talking about in a couple hundred years' time. That's for sure. <laughs> I think that this is going to end up somewhere between if, if, if indifference was to marry silence, that's uh, what we'd be, we'd be dealing with here. Um, so so and we're going to use some of the, the, the people that we've interviewed before. We're going to look at uh, WePower, looking at the generation, the, the, the crowdfunding they've done. Uh, Electrify Asia, we're going to look at the, the retail side and, and PowerLedger, we're going to look at the network opportunity. And then we're going to talk about some of those other things uh, that we... That, that, that related to hardware and technology risk. But it is important to outline that all of these, while we're sort of pigeonholing these things like WePower in terms of generation, is that all of these platforms are looking to partner and pivot and evolve their platforms to address all of those things. So it's important that if people want to go back and listen to those interviews again, just to see the full context of, uh, of what's happening, as well as um, looking at, you know, there's many other platforms out there, LO3, Grid Plus, et cetera. So uh, let's kick things off looking at uh, WePower um, if we can uh, just uh, play the clip there, Anthony. Sure. But if we both have solar panels on rooftops, we produce energy at the same time. There's nothing that we're going to trade in. And uh, if we're already conscious about the environment and we already built those solar plants on top, then uh, we're going to want to buy more energy, more renewable energy. And uh, that, for that, you have to have volumes. You have to take it from somewhere. Today, it's a bit more centralized, we can say, you know, 10 to 50 megawatts, although it's not that big on a grand scale of things. Still, that production will deliver energy much cheaper to the final consumers because of simple economies of scale. Uh, so the WePower platform, um, we interviewed um, Nick from, from WePower, and that was a really interesting interview, and I'd direct anyone to go go back onto the website, the BZE website, and have a listen to that interview in full. Um, Wayne, what do you see as the opportunities in terms of addressing that generation part of the, the value proposition? Looking at, you know, from the Australian bill context, that's about 25% of our bill. So, so how do you see energy blockchains addressing that generation aspect? Well, well certainly the... the 
you know, the concept of what they're trying to bring to market is a lower cost ability to bring more more capacity into the market through investment in renewables um, and micro micro investments. Um, so the the idea is is is, is a sound one. Um, I am, you know, I suppose having a watching brief as to just how much impact it would have on the Australian market, given um, you know the growth we've already seen and continue to see in the in the solar. Uh, space uh, and so for me i'm uh, quite interested in where that will go do you do, do you see that 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 there is a lot of fat there to, to remove that if you put in smart contracts that and you sm- and smooth that process you can get access to capital quicker and where it wouldn't have come from before do you see that potential there that they do i i see that i see a potential there i'm just wondering um whether or not without those solutions coming to market would we probably still see those investments happening so in other words is it is it really kind of transformation where it's bringing more to market or would that have happened anyway albeit maybe a bit more expensive or a bit slower to take off but would mm. have happened anyway so it's a hard one to measure but um i'm a bit skeptical given that we've seen such you know huge uptake uh, in the market anyway well i just want to sort of you know uh highlight these sort of things in order i mean i sort of summarized from the interviews we did uh, one of the big you know the, the issues you raised here wayne which is a good one is this idea around fractional ownership the idea that the blockchain makes it easily transferable uh, in terms of these contracts um customers uh, nick alluded to the fact that customers know where their power is coming from whether we think that that's something that customers will really want to you know know which wind farm they're supporting whether that's uh, valuable um, he's right to suggest that there's, uh, you know, a potentially good ROI on some of these these assets. You know, they're giving you returns of 12 and 15 percent, uh, you know, depending on where the project is and how it works. And so the fact that you can park your money there and get that sort of return is something that that, that is attractive. And the fact that from a uh, capital allocation point of view, that it would de-risk uh, any capital investment because you're able to pre-sell that output and maybe reduce the, the the initial capex as you're developing the project. Those were the things that he sort of he outlined. Uh, can can you see any sort of risks though? If we go through these things, looking at the opportunities first of all, and then the risks. What are the the problems associated with a, with a model like that? And bearing in mind as well, um, Nick did point out the fact that you're very much doing this is a big difference between say PowerLedgers and 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 some of these other platforms is you're doing a business to peer transaction effectively. A large-scale wind farm, you know, transacting to an individual. Uh, so I, I'm going to put that in the business-to-peer category rather than the peer-to-peer category. Even though uh, Nick did say that you know you could do it on a smaller scale, but just the, the economies of scale is what makes the large-scale stuff work. What What are the risks, though? Yeah, so I, I suppose um, a couple spring to mind. One, one is uh, oversupply, um, and so that that would potentially you know devalue um, some of these investments. Um, uh, in terms, of if we see uh, a large volume coming coming to market, uh, I suppose the other the other risk is just the practical implementation. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the demand at the moment, um, from what I'm seeing, it it outstrips the ability to physically you know build these these solar uh, these solar farms. So again, there might be the the funds being released, but do we have the capacity to build uh, you know to to build this uh, this infrastructure? But given that. You know, the, the, just on the broader macro level, the challenge of climate change, if there are people that think that we need to transform the energy grid faster than we need to and we could gasp, retire, 
fossil fuel assets before <laughs> their end of their natural life, then, yeah, we'd need to get quick really quickly, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. I, I, um, I'm a full supporter of, of this path. Uh, I suppose I'm just looking at some of the, some of the challenges that they're going to need to overcome uh, to fully embrace it. And do you see any risks? I mean, we brought this up in the interview, uh, Wayne. We brought this issue up around how you deal with uh, things like network constraints, where they are effectively selling output. And depending on where the project is, obviously it's a large scale project, so it's going to be sort of potentially a long way away from that that uh, customer. Um, you know, and I can I can genuinely see opportunities for this. You know, if you live in an inner city Melbourne apartment, you just simply can't put panels on your roof, mm-hmm. and you may want to buy some output from a Victorian wind farm. I, I can see that 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 platform is attractive. Uh, to some people, but do you buy into anything? Effectively, if you're buying output, um, how do you deal with the problem that the output that you might be buying might not be at the time you're using it? So, so if the wind farm is or a solar farm is in the day and you're out, you know, at work, you're only buying capacity uh, from this farm at a time when you're not able to use it. Yeah, and I, th- I think um, for me, when we see these models really take off, is is when we see the uh, the adoption of storage at the same kind of scales as we're seeing solar, because then you can match sure. supply with demand, yep. Um, yep. and that's when I see these kind of models really, really kicking in. Sure, whether that storage be where it's being generated or where it's being uh, consumed. Correct. Yeah. yeah, it is always work of the regulator to see under in which of the boxes the project falls under. So. You can always say something looks like a security, but the question is, does it look like something else as well? And we talked about this question with the regulators, and uh, they don't see it uh, as a security. Uh, They see it as a utility. So it falls under that regulation. The contracts themselves on the platform, which are energy contracts, uh, they're not a security in themselves. It's a contract for energy delivery. But the tokens that give, you know, uh, it's a question, what rights do you have by holding that token? And how does it perform on the platform? So the, uh, Nick gave a good example there, uh, you know, of, of some of the issues, and this is something that faces all of these blockchain uh, sort of utility tokens, is the idea around whether they are a security and how uh, regulators will treat them. Um, they've had a ruling uh, that, that, that we know in Europe that they are not treated as security. They're still awaiting that in Australia, um, and, and we haven't got any update on that, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll get an update before they, they leave Australia on, on the status of that. And from a project finance point of view, this creates a really interesting dynamic that we haven't ever come across in the market, is that you are effectively trying to look at debt funding, equity funding, and you're funding the unsecured output of a project. And so from the finance side of this, anyone who's looking to invest in these projects is going to want to know uh, how these things, for example, would perform in the event of liquidation. So normally the way it works is the debt holders have got the first claim, then the equity holders, uh, and then you've got potentially unsecured output. And so these things, and I want to be clear because I know that, you know, if this ends up on WePower's uh, sort of Telegram channel, there might be a lot of angry people saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. I think these guys do know what they're talking about, but these are simply details that will need to get released. Uh, And one of the ways that it could be overcome, for example, is that they may need to offer a slightly higher rate of return than they might be offering to equity holders. And that then fixes the problem because the risk and the, the, uh, the reward are aligned. But we just haven't had a lot of detail on how that output sits and the actual risk that anyone investing in these projects to gain output will will um, will be compensated for their risk. Does anyone have any views on how that project financing gets managed? Well, I mean, just in the, in the general point about about how w- what these are classed as. I mean, 
regulatory categories can be made up. You know, if, if there's a new one, we create it. So in terms of who gets compensated in what order, it's not about saying that a smart contract holder should be this or this. It is really about, yeah, they are a new class of, uh, of actor in this process and should be managed managed that way. Um, and so uh, this is this is really new, isn't it, Wayne, in, sen- in the sense that I- I'm not somebody who has an a, 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 uh, a, a asset. So I'm taking on the risk even though I'm not an owner. Not the owner, yeah. Um, so what kind of challenges does that, does that bring? Uh, I'll chip in with that, Anthony. So I think that... Um, that it just adds risk. It just adds risk and uncertainty. And it's not stuff that I think can't get resolved, but it's the sorts of things that anyone who's investing using their tokens to buy output is just going to need to be really aware of. They're going to need to be aware of that they are buying this. Um, What I think will be most interesting about WePowers is that if they're able to get higher returns, and let's just say on a typical project, you might get an IRR of 15%, um, is that you may actually find that token holders might accept the equivalent of, let's say, 13%. Let Energy Australia get their 16%. Uh, the debt holders get their you know, 5 or 6% or whatever it is. And that's going to be a really interesting um, exercise to do because you know, even though it's not rational that you would accept a lower rate for an unsecured uh, investment – maybe people will. Maybe people just want to own these assets and they will accept, uh, you know, a higher risk for a slightly lower, given the benefits that we've alluded to earlier about fractional ownership and the liquidity of the product and all those other sorts of things. I mean, I think this is going to be very interesting to see what the market will do. But you are, you know, one of my concerns, and I do think, you know, as I said, the WePower guys, that they will have thought of a lot of this stuff, um, is is how do you convince mum and dad investors who've bought some tokens in WePower to participate in these platforms, how do you get them to understand highly complex project finance? Yes, and, and at the end of the day, you can talk all you like about risk premiums, etc. At the end of the day, the real test for this is when something as actually does go under liquidation. Yeah, and, sure. And, and if people feel exposed and feel that they haven't been, um, that, that those risks weren't correctly uh, described to them. Then uh, yeah, it may be the, the case that the regulator needs to uh, needs to come in and, and set set the expectations. And there's also some interesting stuff. And I know I'm going to get people bored, and this people are starting to drop off listening to this podcast talking about project finance risk. But the other thing to consider in any of this is the the idea of when this token money or this investment comes on board. If it comes on early in the very pre planning page, which I don't think it will, then it technically carries a much higher risk. So when the money is committed in the project finance is also highly relevant to the return that someone might ask for the investment. Um, I assume, and, and these guys, you know, they, they, as I said, they know what they're doing and they've, they've done this stuff in Europe, that it will almost certainly be that uh, it's once you go to financial close and you're starting to dig stuff out of the ground, all the pre-planning's done, that, that, that you would start to bring these people on. Because the last thing they need from a reputational point of view is bring people in early, the project doesn't go ahead, you burn a load of token holders' money. That's not going to be, uh, not going to be great for them. Absolutely. The other interesting point I think about uh, their platform is that one of the good things, the other good things that we're going to find out uh, about it is, is we're going to get some really good insights into how if, if the level of disclosure that we're talking about here is disclosed to the market, we're going to get some really good insights into how Energy Australia are, are funding and structuring their project finance deals because they will have to disclose it all. So let's have a chat as well. So we've talked a bit about the sort of the opportunities, the risks in generation. Let's have a chat about retail. Um, so let's. So we're, we, we're only in the R in the Grantham. Uh, that's right. We're only the, that's right. We've got plenty, okay. <laughs> plenty of time to go. Um, but let's listen to what uh, what Julius from Electrify Asia had to say. What I think the smart contract will, will uh, 
would help a lot is in reducing uh, compliance costs, uh, operational as well as finance costs. So what this means is that um, retailers and energy providers uh, no longer need to hire um, that many people in order to monitor contracts uh, as well as to execute contracts. And, and uh, hopefully this, um, this cost savings will be passed on from the retailers and the energy generators to the consumers. So we expect perhaps about half of that half of that margin um, uh, would be would, uh, would be saved by, by the consumer as well as the retailer. So Julius uh, talked there about sort of the opportunity to trim some of the fat on that uh, sort of retail bit of the pie, which we know in Australia is about twenty percent of, of of a total bill. Um, he went on to talk in that interview, and I'll sort of just sort of br- briefly give you the summary points. You know, decreased counterparty risk, uh, the improvement in working capital as a result of the fact that retailers can effectively receive payment immediately rather than waiting their traditional 90 days, uh, the reduced compliant costs. He obviously also mentioned smart contracts. You can track carbon emissions, renewable energy production, all sorts of other things. Um, he did bring up a very interesting point related to the potential for more pricing liquidity in the market and then talked about the sort of the potential for integration with low payment, low friction wallet options. Wayne, how do you see uh, the ability to to trim that bit of the pie uh, from a retailer's perspective? Look, I think the opportunity um, is is there. The, the area that uh, I suppose I'm looking at uh, in the retail space is as a, as a platform in terms of blockchain, I think most of the retailers will already be exploring um, these opportunities. And so I would think that we would start to see uh, a reduction in, in overall costs across the board uh, as, as some of these come to market. I'm not, I'm not necessarily seeing that this um, platform will introduce a, like a disruptive nature where we'll see uh, a new retailer kind of take a significant market share as a result of this. But I do think we'll see an overall market shift uh, in, the, in the, if you like, the cost of retail operations and therefore we should see some, uh, some of this fat come out. It is interesting. Like I, I, this may seem a little out there, but I, rem- I remember when when Apple Pay was first introduced. We can speak about the the uh, the, the success of that or not, but there was no increased cost to the consumer. But Apple was going to make an income from it, and the way they were going to do it was by increasing the security of transactions because you are verifying your your identity with the thumbprint at the point of purchase. And there is a so it just gets you thinking. There's a whole bunch of fat and fees in basically managing fraud, and if you can remove a lot of that, then you can really streamline the process. So I guess this comes into the same category, doesn't it? That there's a whole bunch of things that are happening around debt collection and all these things that they build into the process that they could effectively go away. Absolutely, um, and and I suppose when I, you know, when I when I talk to people about this, this view of disruption to the market, to me, when I when I think of disruption, I think of uh, a new entrant coming in and taking significant market share from from the incumbents. I'm not seeing that. What I'm seeing is, is that this this new approach to to being able to remove uh, a lot of this uh, a lot of this activity, you know, that where you need a, a kind of trusted authority today, blockchain is going to allow you to decentralise that. Um, we're going to see the kind of all the retailers follow that path to reduce their costs. Um, so so in, that, in that sense, it's not a disruptive innovation as such. It's more of a, a sustaining innovation. I, I think it will transform how the market operates, but I'm not seeing, you know, if I were one of the major players and saw a, a more nimble retailer bring this to market, I, I would be looking at going down that same path. And so I'm not seeing a, it create a massive shift. Um, there is another startup that, that's um, you know coming to the market very soon called Anosi. Um, I do see that they have the potential uh, 
to disrupt. Um, their focus is on creating, uh, lowering, lowering the barriers to allow uh, new retailers, neo-retailers come to market um, by kind of shielding them from having to deal with the uh, the, the trading in the wholesale market, having to having the smart contracts to manage a lot of the back office activities, and so we will see a lot more retailers come to market, and therefore we will see a, a, a sort of shift in in you know how many retailers are out there, and then the the kind of um, the customer base spreading more um, across these across these retailers. So certainly, I see there's blockchain will have a significant role to play, but it really depends on the I suppose the business models. That are, that are being brought to market. So Wayne, just following on from what you're talking about there, you mentioned that uh, you know that, that some of these new retailers are coming out. Julius, I mean, he sort of said he thinks he can reduce that by about half, was what he sort of said, you know, I think I can reduce that by about half. Is that genuinely realistic, that we think that half of Energy Australia or Origins fixed costs, we can get rid of all that, that headcount's all gone now, you know? Is that really realistic in a complex, evolving regulatory environment um, where... You know, regulators are still going to say things like, uh, you know, how do you deal with that's fine when you've gone off and you've set this little neo reader, but what if one of your customers has got uh, a priority customer on a dialysis machine? You know, can we put that on the smart contract? You know, how do we how do we manage all of these curly, you know, very mild, uh, minor one in a hundred thousand cases that still need to be managed? But that the smart contract simply can't be written for them. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. Uh, the 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 smart the smart contracts, especially in these early days, there's going to be a huge number of edge cases. Um, and so, you know, over time, as as you scale out, then you can obviously build that into the smart build those edge cases into the smart contracts. But you're always going to have uh, you know have scenarios where you have these edge cases. I think as well, if you imagine an incumbent retailer, um, they they're going to have to run kind of dual operations for quite some time because they'll have a large customer base that's operating in the existing manner. Uh, and so all the systems, all the process you'll have, and you'll now have this other way of operating as well. So we're increasing it, it red could tape. Al- could, al- could almost, yeah. Uh, all you know, cost. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, so it could. And then this is where, yeah, it may be disruptive, right? That if, if they need to hold on to their own old revenue stream, and don't have you know have all these encumbrances that these new players won't. Then yeah, it, it may be that a new retailer could could emerge. That's right. The new retailers can can really focus on. They've got no baggage. They can really focus on the customers that fit into the smart contract uh, and avoid a lot of those edge cases and and really make that difference. Um, I, I suppose what's interesting to see though is um, just how much disruption will occur when we look at the eighty ninety percent of consumers that still remain with the big three despite there being better offers out there and the inertia that sets in where they still remain. So I think there's there's that human element still that regardless of how good um, these new players will be able to you know, create offerings based on, on this, these new technologies, uh, will we see the customers shift in significant numbers? Exactly. Some people still have fixed-line phones. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's still a thing. Yes. <laughs> anyway, go yeah. on, go on. Um, so, so, I mean, I'm really interested, um, you know, your point of view, Wayne, in terms of uh, some of the risks. We went through some of the opportunities. Obviously, we talk about counterparty. And one that I think is really significant is the, you know, in terms of the opportunities is the idea around sort of working capital and the idea that you can receive immediate payment and that that can make the, the efficiency, the capital efficiency of these organisations a, a, uh, a lot better. I think that's a really good application of the blockchain. But I do still, there are going to be, some issues in terms of uh, you know 
things like how you know the blockchain may deal with the power of choice legislation, um, the rules for not immediately disconnecting people from a smart contract, uh, you know, at the time that they don't pay their bill. You know, there's all these sort of protections for consumers that exist. That the blockchain is just it will just follow a set of rules. It won't show any initiative. It won't, uh, you know, write a certificate or you've spoken to someone in HR and fine, you can keep going. So there's some some issues around that. There's also, I think, um, issues in terms of, uh, you know, you know how things might work in the event that a retailer went into liquidation, um, and how data is being managed and stored. So, do you see, uh, you know, how do those things fit in, uh, Wayne, in terms of the retailing platform, the risks associated with that retailing platform? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, th- those certainly are are areas that would need to be, you know, need to be addressed. I think there's um, quite a number of of risks at the moment. Uh, if you think uh, the analogy, uh, you know, if you think of Bitcoin, um, and that has to interface with uh, fiat currency. Um, if you think of a blockchain um, platform and the value it can deliver, but within the ecosystem of of the marketplace, it still has to interface with these old technologies and these these other ways of working. And so, I think the risk is, you know, how how will that actually work? How will that play out? Um, again, the technology is also very new, so there are no there are no standards around. There's many different variants of blockchain. Um, and they serve different purposes. So again, it's, there's going to be uh, kind of a lot of bumps along the way before we can really, I think, see value at scale of these of these technologies. Sure. Now, the, the other sort of angle, you know, we're going through the, very slowly through the Grantham Protocol. I agree, uh, Anthony, we're up to retail. So we look at the network opportunities and the example we're going to use in this is the Power Ledger sort of uh, case study. I mean, for the people, it was such a long time ago that we did that interview, um, Anthony, with, uh, with the Power Ledger team. Mm. But uh, to sort of briefly summarize their approach to it they're looking at trying to maximize the value of the network um, and looking at trying to create a sort of a portfolio effect for people trading peer-to-peer within a grid um, and, and effectively relying on that principle that you're trying to limit grid defection where it's not you don't want it to be in anyone's individual interest to leave the grid or they're going to need to have a slightly bigger solar system and a slightly bigger battery uh, to manage those dark days of winter if you can keep communities connected and you can keep a portfolio of assets together you kind of lower the cost for everyone and you maximize the need for transaction over the grid which then gives the grid some value um, so that's the sort of you know loose model that they're using um, if you look at the bull case, if you like, for you know networks, I mean, one thing that I I've been thinking about more and more as we've delved into these interviews is using sort of a GFC analogy. People were selling, uh, for example, they were selling uh, home loans to people that couldn't afford them. The salesmen were incentivized to deliberately sell them to people they knew they couldn't afford them, and so they those salesmen were individually adding risk to the system. <laughs> And that eventually, you know, added up, and it, caused, but it was all the same risk. That, that all, it was all the same risk. That's right. And if you look at the network system at the moment, you know, and there's been plenty of research out on this. You know, the idea that for every new air conditioner you add, it might cost you two thousand dollars, but it costs the grid five thousand dollars to get the power to you. So you're having no incentive not to add risk to the system. And the more you can kind of localize that risk and bring that risk as close to the person giving it out as possible uh, means that, you know, you're better able to create a systemic environment where you can manage that risk. So 
you know, I look at, you know, over time, if we can sort out some of the price signals, and we had Simon Corbell on the show talking about, you know, potential for, for markets, uh, you know, specific markets and specific tariffs in specific areas, that I think is one of the big sort of um, blockchain, one of the opportunities at attacking that network opportunity. Does anyone have any um, other sort of pros, if you like, or the bull case for how blockchain could could uh, could address that network value stream? Yes, I think. I mean, you, we'll come to the challenges of that in a moment. But I think. But I think there, there are many. Are, but, but, <laughs> there but, are many. But I think that's the you know the primary value is. Um, and again, we need to look at kind of cost reflective pricing to enable this. But once that's in place, you know, I see a huge value in or a huge opportunity in what you've just described. Um, I, I think as well there is um, value in. Uh, just the social element as well, the the the, the potential for people that want to um, trade energy, even if it's not um, you know, the most cost-effective approach for them to do so, but they want to support the local community hall, the, the, the local school, the the ability to trade um, energy, um, you know, at, at that level is something I think we're going to see uh, a lot more momentum building, and, and blockchain will enable that to to happen. On another sort of angle in terms of that, the potential value stream, um, Wayne, do you see, I've always, and, and this could be could be uh, sort of delusional, but, but I'm going to throw it out there. Um, at the moment, in terms of how networks invest, they apply and they put switching gear on and they invest, do you see the ability for, uh, and I know we've had uh, Richard McKindo from Edge Electrons, who's got a very sort of low-cost voltage stabilization mm-hmm. device, do you see the ability for, Price signals driven by a blockchain are combined with, you know, Richard's sort of switching gear, very low cost, and having all those things combined where you could displace the need for those very expensive, you know, Siemens, all that, you know, the the big investment. Do you see an ability for networks to utilize blockchain and its pricing signals to provide some of those voltage stabilization and other things that are now provided by physical hardware? Do you see some of that being displaced? Potentially by price signals. Yeah, I, I see the. I certainly see the potential, and I think this is maybe going to fold, fold into some of the challenges. Is there's, there's a lot of discussions around uh, network price signals, and there's actually a lot of support for moving in that direction. Where I'm seeing a lot of the the discussion and and the challenges, um, the retailer has the relationship with the customer, and they determine uh, the price signal. And therefore, there's discussion as to whether or not that network price is absorbed into the retailer's overall plan. And so this is some of the things that needs to be resolved, is there may be price signals that can come from the network business, um, but it may not actually find its way to the to the consumer. It really depends on how the retail is packaging up that the product it's selling to to the consumer. So assuming that you can uh, you can pass some of those, share those if around, willing to, pass uh, you know, on to then. those consumers that are that are helping stabilize the network, Absolutely. and you can share that cost, then yep. you know that's the um, potential is definitely there. Yeah, yep. and and obviously the the one I didn't mention uh, in terms of other potential vendors is that um, there's very clearly cases where you're going to have towns of 100 people, 400 kilometers from transmission lines that the capex to get course, the power there. Yep. So that's a, it's a very clear. Uh, application potential application for microgrids, um, especially in regional parts of Queensland and even um, uh, bits of Western Australia as well. Um, so let's hear what uh, we interviewed Gemma a long time ago, but let's hear what she had to say in terms of some of the the challenges that um, that addressing that network value stream might entail. Well, porting electricity from you know, one place to another is something that um, 
is able to be done in most places in Australia already. It's called a wheeling access arrangement and you can port, move electricity from point to point. But usually what it is is for like a large consumer and there's a large um, generation asset down the road and they move the electricity across a discrete part of the network. And so the regulation hasn't really contemplated that on mass peer-to-peer, you know, or business-to-business or consumer-to-business or consumer-to-consumer. So I think that it, you know, the regulation probably needs to catch up with, uh, with this and it, uh, in certain markets. And where the regulation um, uh, hasn't caught up, there's still really big opportunities for using this technology behind the meter right now. So that's in apartment buildings, in shopping centres or in estates. And and so Gemma raised the point there, you know, uh, and this is uh, touching on all of the stuff that we've discussed previously, Wayne, is this idea around wheeling charges and you're talking about cost-reflective pricing. So, you know, we could do an hour and a half show on that alone. Yeah. We won't, but but let's sort of touch on some of those issues. We've brought them up with previous guests, Simon Corbell, a number of other people. At the moment, to use an Uber analogy, um, you know, and if you imagine a, a cost of an Australian bill is about 30 cents, you pay about half of that, or this is 50% of the cost, um, you pay about 15 cents to trade with your neighbour and you still pay 15 cents to use the network if you get it from the Latrobe Valley, you know, 400 kilometres away. So uh, the idea around uh, cost-reflecting pricing, that is going to evolve over time. Um, but do you, where do you see uh, the evolution of things like wheeling charges and how could this be done uh, when, you know, Anthony and I have discussed before, you know, maybe would it be five cents to trade within your node, 10 cents, you know, between you and the substation and 15 cents. How do you see that uh, tariff structure being optimised? Yeah, and, and I think one of the one of the largest challenges here is that um, if you look at how the network has been, I suppose, designed and financed, uh, you know, you mentioned that everything's been treated equal in the past. Um and, and that's because, you know, part of the reason is if there are people living in, you know, the more remote areas, still getting them affordable access to energy. If you were creating that from scratch today, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be using the, the technologies, the network technologies um, that you invested in the past. But there is an enormous amount, you know, sitting on the various books of these network businesses. And so it's, it's not just a case of, you know, the, the regulators um, making a decision to move in this part in this direction, but it's how do we how do we deal with the assets that are on the books, uh, and having a uh, a plan to be able to potentially write down you know a large number of these assets so we can move towards this new this new pricing structure. So there's always the potential that you know as this transition occurs, and there's a couple of factors that are going to push it and help it up, and one of them is obviously electric vehicle charging. You get some more load on there, that's going to make the distributors happy. Um, obviously, as people start to generate and store more of their own storage, that's going to make them unhappy potentially if they're they're getting fees from that. But is there some way that we could you know use a bit of sort of creative thinking and, and do things like recognize parts of the network where you might have been able to for example you know you've technically allocated let's say ten million dollars for for upgrading some transmission lines but rather than do that you say to these privately owned networks rather than the ten million if you can put some price signals in the bit where the constraints going to be we'll allow you to uh, get a return on that regulated asset base that you didn't spend. You know, something like that where you're able yeah. to give them this, this regulated... Because that then is you then start to create some win-wins because you're saying, hey, you can reduce your CapEx, but you can still get 
a, a regulated rate of return on this investment you technically haven't made. Yeah, and, and that's being looked at at the moment where, I mean, um, sort of uh, step away from the, the, the technology of blockchain, but just the, the, the fact that if a a network business can call a demand response event locally um, or even contract that out for someone to call a demand response event or rely on some uh, distributed energy resources, then that, that's the direction that I'm seeing the discussions uh, within the regulators heading is how do we avoid these investments, as you've just suggested, in this, in this network infrastructure uh, and rely more on, uh, more, more on the local, you know, local capability. I think blockchain can facilitate that. Um, Definitely, but it's. I see that as a path that's happening anyway. Um, and what will be interesting is, you know, again, how can we leverage technology such as the blockchain to uh, to kind of accelerate this? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting points that uh, Simon Corbell brought up in the interview that we had with him was this issue of equity across a region. You know, where you know, if you're going to put in one regional town, you're going to give them a different tariff structure to the next town over right. and they're within the one electorate you know how do politicians manage that one group might be getting you know five cents a kilowatt hour and another group's getting 15 yeah um consumers aren't going to be well informed about this and understand it so there's issues around the equity across a system uh, and how you put those tariff structures in place that are politically palatable as well i suppose and i, th- I think you raise a, a great point is the Again, back to the, uh, I suppose, the community um, and their understanding of this. I mean, if you if you still speak to most individuals, um, they just want to not even think about any of this. You know, they just want a very simple plan that doesn't impact the the household, uh, kind of spend too much, and that's as far as they want to go. So we, we've got to have a, a degree of caution in. Um, having this cost-reflective type pricing that gets so complex um, that it really starts to confuse the, the community and there's a backlash as a result of that. Sure. Um, so now, moving on, we've finished the, the, G, uh, the G, R and N of the Granted Protocol here. Um, the other one I wanted to talk about, and these aren't specifically to those the pie chart that we mentioned before, but they are significant things that any blockchain platform is going to need to consider you know, as they deploy and attempt to scale. Uh, the one I wanted to bring up was technology risk um, and how this gets managed uh, and I want to be very sort of clear that I know if you were to put the sort of the We Power code and the Power Ledger code and the, the Electrify Asia code in front of me, I know um, about a one in three chance of getting it right. So I, I don't know much about this, but I know that it's a risk and that uh, that in order for any of these platforms to scale, they are going to need to deal with issues associated with data management, uh, scalability. Uh, privacy, especially as Anthony brought up before, the issue to do with um, with Facebook and what's been recently happening, uh, you know, in, in terms of, you know, that that's now front of mind, data management and how it's going to occur. And so the fact that you might be on a public blockchain versus a private blockchain could completely, you know, affect your ability to enter or, or, or penetrate certain markets. Uh, and I think that that, especially the privacy stuff, is going to get more relevant over time. So, you know, have either of you got sort of any thoughts on, you know, the technology risk associated with, um, you know, the deployment of, of blockchain technology generally from the scalability and privacy, et cetera? Sure. So, so like, I think you're right. If you look at um, the various blockchain um, technologies out there, um, scale is definitely an issue uh, in terms of, I think it's... Uh, seven transactions per second or something that kind of Bitcoin was designed for and uh, uh, Ethereum has, has kind of scaled out and, and, and can do slightly better, but nothing compared to the processing power of, say, Visa or MasterCard. Um, and so definitely the, the throughput is a, is a challenge. Um, 
the the other is the frequency it takes you know anything from uh, depending again on the on the platform it takes anywhere between three and ten minutes to create a block and so if you're dealing in kind of near real-time transactions uh, and you're waiting three to ten minutes for the block to form um, then there are some challenges there uh, there's also because it's still so new um, you're seeing a lot of forks in the technology. So, you know, a blockchain will fork and create a new blockchain platform because it offers slightly different capabilities. Um, so all of these are definitely uh, challenges that n- will need to be overcome before any of this can scale out. It's fine at the moment with a lot of these pilots, um, but certainly, and, and concerns on security. And security, for me, falls into two camps. One is the actual security risks, the other is the perceived security risks. And so, again, we won't see mass adoption until um, people that are making these investments are comfortable uh, that they believe the data is, is, is relevantly secured. I also think that this one of the other factors is there's actually a genuine systemic risk here, and there's no real um, sort of uniformness around uh, you know, standardization. I mean, if you're going and you're a customer and you're looking to use any one of these blockchain platforms, uh, you know, I feel like there needs to be some sort of star rating, you know, a health food rating. You've got five stars, a very secure, you know, good one, but nobody really has the expertise. Um, maybe that's the opportunity for the chapel group there, uh, Wayne, you know, because no one, you talk to people and go, oh, I yep. like this and I like this platform, but all we are going to need is for one of these blockchain technologies to crumble over and there's going to be a systemic risk that the market will just shut it out. How look, do you see you, that risk? Well, if anything? you look at something like, say, cloud storage and, and, um, and cloud uh, hosting of applications and stuff, which is, of course, um, very relevant these days. Yeah, the, you you can go into if you're you're planning to serve a an application via the cloud to a to an organisation. There's a there's a checklist that, that these guys know what to ask for to be sure and have certainty on on all of those points. And something similar needs to come here as well. Yeah, and and, and I mean already you've got a number of the major vendors that offer blockchain as a service. Um, but you're right, it's still very early days, and there, there, there's got to be. Um, if I've got a particular problem to solve, as you say, there should be a checklist, checklist that leads me to say, okay, that's the blockchain technology that I can use to solve this problem, and, and that's still being worked through at the moment. So, Wayne, the other the, the other question I had is in relation to sort of you know data management. I mean, at the moment, uh, and this I think is a genuine risk for all of these guys as, as things go forward. Currently, I think we connect collect data about every fifteen minutes from our smart contracts. If we were to collect it every one minute, that's 15 times more. Uh, and if we want to go towards more sort of real time, we might be talking 500 times more data. And given we can't really manage the stuff we've got, you can argue in a lot of cases from these networks, uh, how do you see that risk being managed? I mean, the blockchain says I can manage it if it can scale and do all of this stuff so it can help with all of that. But that's a huge amount of data. It is. And when I mentioned earlier about the the interfacing with outside of the blockchain ecosystem, if you think of where that data is getting generated, it's not getting generated from within a blockchain ecosystem. So it's got to now pass that data into the blockchain for it to manage. It won't it won't make sense for it for blockchain to manage and house all of that data. It would normally aggregate that. So it's also then got to make sure that it still aligns with you know the, the large amounts of data that's being stored outside and managed outside. So you, you're absolutely right. If you look at the, you, you know, the, the energy companies today, they are struggling with how do I deal with the existing flood of data and how do I get value from it? And we haven't even seen kind of the tip of the iceberg yet with the, the amount of data that's about to come. And so the other sort of uh, aspect following on from this uh, 
sort of customer-centric models, looking at hardware. I mean, the, the one that sticks out for me out of the, the platforms that we interviewed was, was Julius Tan. They were looking at uh, bringing their PowerPod to market um, and the idea around... So there's two things to do with hardware that I think are relevant. The first one is you know, the idea around some of these platforms choosing to vertically integrate and, 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 and have their future staked on a particular... Uh, you know, a particular IoT technology. And the second one is is about smart meter rollout generally. I mean, uh, these smart meters, firstly, blockchains won't work where there aren't smart meters, which is still, you know, parts of Australia and, 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 and bits of the world globally. Mm-hmm. And the secondly is, are they going to be the right sort of smart meters and are they going to be 5G enabled? And, and how do you manage the risk around uh, things like when the... Uh, when the 5G network goes down. Yeah, and if you look at, um, I mean, smart meters, for example, they actually try to um, manage a number of those risks by having local storage, and we're seeing now with the development of, uh, and let's call them smart devices, not just smart meters, because there are alternate solutions that can measure uh, consumption at a, at a premise level or household level, um, but they're getting the, the ability to store and make decisions at the edge of the network. And so we are seeing the possibility that if the if the 5G network went down, it could store that data until such a time that it can it can feed it back. So I think I think we'll see some solutions coming to market there. So you're saying it will still function as a system and then it will eventually upload right. the data Re- as it reconnects. And, and, and but the, 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 the stabilisation and all of the things that the grid needs to go will keep going. Correct, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the same with, you know, interesting you mentioned about the smart meter rollout. Um, where there aren't smart meters, um, there are other devices coming to market that you can use to, to measure consumption. But, but that's the challenge is you've got to be measuring consumption at a very granular two-way level for, for these other solutions to work. Uh, the other sort of a bit of the taxonomy to sort of uh, overlay with this, and because one of the, the big trends that's happened, you know, that any blockchain platform would, would no doubt be aware of is this idea around decentralization. Um, and I, uh, you know, in writing the, the Renew Economy articles, um, I'm going to post a very nice graph from um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And if you look at the decentralization energy ratios over time in different countries, there's some really interesting projections. And so uh, platforms that are looking, that are leveraging this decentralization, Australia is a fantastic market. So by 2030, we're going to be up to about 40% decentralization. Uh, China, on the other hand, is going to be, uh, by 2035, is going to be about 10%. Germany's 35%. So um, how the decentralization of your market plays into your strategy for how your blockchain platform is rolling out. I also think is going to be very interesting. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Anthony or Wayne, in terms of you know decentralization and, and how that may fit into this the rollout of this sort of tech? Yeah, well, I think it's if you look at um, liberalized markets um, such as we've got here in, in Australia, um, that's that really lends itself to. Uh, startups coming in and, and looking at these technologies to, to bring new services uh, you know, into the market and to really shake things up um, in a fully fully integrated, uh, regulated market, less of an incentive to do so. Um, and so I think you're right, we'll see, we'll see things like blockchain coming into the Australian market at a much faster rate than we might see it in other parts of, of the world. What does uh, the, the, the various load profiles um, play a role as well? Because, you know, you know it was always hilarious when uh, people would talk about how oh, this aluminium spelter uses 30% of the state's energy or that kind of thing. And always going to an aha moment. So does that have a big part of it to do? Like Australia's manufacturing... Uh, and you know energy demand on that side is is diminishing so um, it's more likely that there will be decentralization simply because the loads are small and disparate 
but like China is still, you know, manufacturing powerhouse, of course the centralised generation is going to make sense well into the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good point. If we, if we look at my time in, in Hong Kong, um, over the time I was there, we saw a lot of the uh, large manufacturing move to China mainland, and therefore we saw the peak move from daytime to evening as it went to the residential and small businesses that, that were coming home and, uh, and, and turning on the aircon or the small businesses running restaurants turning on aircon. And so we saw that, that peak occur. Uh, the same, you know, if we look at Australia, we're seeing a similar pattern where the peak is moving towards residential usage around air conditioning units. And so very much that, uh, that profile is lending itself to, to a decentralised model. Um, so moving on, you know, talking about the, the competitive landscape, we're going to sort of you know make a bit of an attempt to to see you know what this landscape looks like. And the first thing I'd say is I actually, on a whole of all of the platforms that we innovate, I'm quite sort of bullish on all. I think they you know they're all going to have their place in this market going forward. And and I think credit should go to all of the founders and all of the teams working on this because it's a hard space. There's a lot of regulatory uh, sort of risk. Uh, associated with with it all, um, and and as I said, we've done an assessment. We put WePower in the generation bucket and PowerLedger in the the network bucket. But all of these platforms are looking to sort of pivot and partner to address all aspects of that uh, value chain. So that's important. And, and really, their ultimate success is not is not the the point here, right? I mean, for for every Google, there's a million Alta Vistas. Sure. And for every Facebook, there's the MySpaces and those guys. So they all play a role in in us working out what works. And uh, the people that are the success aren't, aren't necessarily the guys who were had the best ideas and, and, and were the, the most uh, competent. It's just the ones that had a bit of luck and saw a niche, and that's what everyone went with. And uh, I, that's why I think all of them have got a, a great deal to say about where we go next. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the thing, you know, we, we, as I said, we've been trying to look at these, these different value streams and how it works, but I think a really important aspect of it is, you know, and, and we touched on it at the start. We're trying to sort of provide some insight to these people that have invested this $500 million into all of these tokens and, and actually give them a bit of an appreciation. But I think a really good starting point for understanding that competitive landscape is to understand the DNA of uh, you know, of the founders. Like, I think that's a really good starting point. I mean, uh, if you look at, you know, someone like Dave Martin, he's a network guy uh, from Perth and he's, you know, with great sunshine and one in four people, you know, with solar and, you know, uh, transmission lines that run 400 kilometres to, you know, 100 people and a real genuine threat of people leaving the grid. So it's natural that, you know, he's going to develop a platform and a business product around what he sees as the problem. Grid, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Julius is based in Singapore. They've got a very dense grid, lots of stabilization equipment, uh, a recently uh, liberated uh, retail energy market. It's very natural that he is going to be attracted towards platforms that are, you know, that, that look at, that don't leverage the network stuff and really look at the retail opportunities. Mm. Uh, Nick, in in his case, uh, you know, from from WePower, uh, they've got, let's be honest, poor sunshine in Northern Europe. You know, they're not going to be biased towards small-scale solar. Um, They've got very stable wholesale energy markets and a different market structure and and focus on the economies of scale. So that's natural that they're going to develop some sort of... And a grid connection with quite a large area that they would like to tap into, where there is sun, for example. So, so, Auntie, what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, that that overall competitive landscape? Well, one thing that we've talked about a lot, Matt, is this, um, 
are are we going to build something that for what we think the market can bear now, or uh, do we believe that there is a, a ideal endpoint that if we just got the regulation sorted out, we've got the perfect product? And the analogy I used was to say uh, the thing that Wayne Gretzky, the famous ice hockey player, used to say was, "I don't skate to where the puck is; I skate to where it's going to be." So you could say that a, a power ledger is looking at that. They're going, oh, "We know that there's going to be regulations that are going to come around; that are going to reform; they're going to allow us to do transactions on." small scale and take advantage of all of these these uh, distributed assets um, whereas a we power is more like I, I would say a Leo, Leo Messi where he's kind of <laughs> playing soccer and he's like well I'm going to keep the ball on my foot and I'm going to run at speed and you still can't get it off me and so I'm going to go to where the market is and I'm not going to and and I'm going to keep to where the regulations are now but but adapt where I need to and um, it, it's a really interesting situation where both have legitimacy, and we only with the fullness of time will we know who who was the, who was right in their approach. I think I think you're spot on, Anthony. I mean, I, the, if you look at some of the We Power stuff, they're talking about you know, in, I think stage three, they're talking about peer to peer. So they're looking at market entry point is through this large scale um, wholesale bit, and then they're looking to pivot over time. It's where where they want to scale initially, and that's. You know what I hope people have got out of this conversation is the idea that these businesses are all looking at all of these things, and and what what I think is interesting also is that the I do one thing I will say I think WePower did slightly land on their feet in the way that are uh, you know they've partnered with Energy Australia who are short generation capacity. I think that that you know that that is helpful and, and Wayne addressed yeah, and, and, and they've also landed on their feet with these incredible ICOs, right? Sure. Like it's given them runway, which means that they can get it wrong for five years and they may still be okay. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think. Um, you know whether or not so so whether or not these particular organisations will will be around five years from now. You know we we won't know, but I think they are trailblazers, and we will definitely they've definitely set a path that that either themselves will make a success of, or others will come and, and build on what they've done. From what I've seen, especially of the likes of Power Ledger, and I mentioned Anosi earlier, they seem to be looking at almost both both um, short term and long term, which is how do they. How do they bring value to the market now within they're the constraints? Both a Messi and a Gretzky. They are. They're, 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 <laughs> they're, right. they're looking at how, you know, you, we've got these constraints today. So how do we bring value to market? Uh, if you look at Power Ledger, you know, they're partnering with an origin uh, energy uh, in the embedded network space because they can't really bring true peer-to-peer to market just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but they have a roadmap for doing that. So I, so I think um, what we're seeing here is these startups that, that are very clear on what we need to do now but definitely with an eye on on the market changing, and then they'll be, you know, playing that space in years to come. Well, I think for me, the, you know, looking at the WePower stuff in a, in a bit of detail, I think that they've got, and I, as I said, can't be sure, but I think that in terms of their platform, that you know, this crowdsourcing stuff, I think it sounds like it's a pretty simple blockchain. I don't think there's a lot of complexity in how that scales and how that. I think that they've got a, and and I say simple, not in a condescending way. I don't necessarily think simple is bad if you're trying to do something like that. So maybe a simple approach initially, get some customer base and go from there, is is a good strategy. It's just storing the contract, right? It's not. Actually- yeah. Actually, you know that the actual tra- um, transaction occurs outside mm. after that contract. But I'd imagine that the the complexity of setting up a micro market and having different uh, tariff structures on would add a tremendous amount of complexity to any platform um, that that. Um, that, that may not ex- that, that may not exist for for WePower. I mean, we've addressed some of the things. One of the things that I thought was interesting, and, and all of these platforms will struggle with this initially, um, is I think that. And you touched on it, Wayne, the idea around, you know, partnering with people. 
Yeah, well, if you um, one, I've mentioned it a, you know, a moment ago, uh, NOC, um, and, and they are a startup that's that's going to be ICOing um, fairly sh- fairly shortly in, in in Australia, based in based in Sydney, um, and their their go to market is an open source blockchain platform that really is looking to uh, enable uh, new retailers to come on board or neo retailers. Uh, they're partnering, for example, with Energy Locals. They're partnering with, who are a truly community-centric retailer uh, startup. Um, they're partnering with um, device uh, device makers so that they can offer services in areas that don't have smart meters. So, so you're right, it, it really is about around building a, an ecosystem of partners. Um, what will be interesting to see is those that choose to partner with the very large players. I wonder what that will mean longer term and how much they get tied to the large players and therefore to, to a degree may dictate some of where they go. Whereas these others that that really from the start are partnering with with the small startups and it is a again a very open source play, I wonder if that will give them more flexibility. So short term, we may not see as bigger revenue gains for those guys, but but they have a much bigger you know game to play in the longer term. Well, I think um, moving on, looking at um, sort of the Electrify Asia, you know, so the opportunities for them. Um, you touched on a lot of those things. I mean, one of the things that I think is uh, a real opportunity in terms of retail platforms is. Uh, you, the idea you brought up before, Wayne, about uh, that this these near retailers and the liquidity that that you would bring the possibility for these ninety day the efficiency working is likely to cause market fragmentation for this sector. You're mm-hmm. going to bring lots of little people in, and if you can put them on the one platform, I mean, what you were saying before there, I that was actually one of the points I had written down for Electrify Asia. The fact that if you can sign lots of little people up, and you can manage all those smart contracts, and 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 give them a highly efficient, uh, you know, uh, you know. 90 days is a long time to wait for revenue that may not show up. Then you've got 14 days to pay it. You know, so, so the idea that you can supercharge these business models, um, get capital in the door, reduce the barriers to entry, I think presents real niche opportunities. And that's one of the things that I think blockchain will have on the landscape. So have you got any sort of additional thoughts on that? Well, I think I'll just add to that, which is I, I think we talk a lot about, you know, when we talk at neo-retailers and we, we think, or the people I talk to will think of kind of startups coming into play. But I think what this opens the market to is other industry verticals that are looking to get in. And so whether that's the insurance verticals, the banking, you know, they all want to play in this space. Um, coming in as a neo-retailer certainly opens up, uh, you know, great opportunities for them to come in and test and learn quickly. Uh, and then refine their models as they go without, you know, at the moment to try and become a fully licensed retailer and play in the market is a huge commitment. Um, removing those barriers, we're going to see a lot more players coming in, trying out new models and, and, and finding what works. So do, do you see any parallel there then, say, with, um, say, the supermarket chains who got into insurance? Were there things that happened in that space? Not that I don't know if any of us are experts in, in sort of <laughs> we'll have a go. but basically white labeling it, right? Where 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 someone could knock knocks on Coles' door and says, all you have to do is choose some options, and then you've got an insurance product that you can sell to to your to your captive audience who are in waiting in line to get it at the <laughs> checkout. I mean, someone could go to Telstra and say, you can be an energy retailer now. Correct. So this is exactly. Um, what what an OC's model is is to uh, enable um, the Telstra's, the, the the big supermarket chains, the insurance, the banks, as well as the new startups, to really come in and not have to be 
a licensed retailer. They can manage the relationship with the consumer and they've got huge consumer bases and great relationships um, and they can sign those customers up. Uh, but knowing that the back office retail, the wholesale trading, everything is being managed um, you know, through these, through these platforms. Uh, and that's a really uh, exciting opportunity because to date um, there is this huge obstacle, which is if I want to play in the market, I need to be a licensed retailer. And and you we've touched on a couple of things here. Another sort of uh, flavour that I want to put over this, or another sort of angle, a lens that I want to look through this uh, in, in terms of, and we're looking at these platforms and we're looking at which ones might scale and do well. Um, I feel like that in the, uh, particularly uh, things to do with EV charging, that there's a real opportunity to, to link things, to, and, and we know that electric vehicles are going to take off. I don't feel like there's the same ability for we power to get a network effect in terms of there's no incremental value as you sign another customer up to your generation output, but there is genuine potential for network effects looking at the retail bit and the network bit where you could, for example, uh, you know, using the blockchain, set a platform up where, for example, uh, you know, Wayne, if you and I were on the same platform, is that I might be able to charge my electric vehicle at your house, you might be able to charge yours at mine, and we could just, rather than my electricity having to go over the grid, we just net it off on the blockchain. Correct. We use the blockchain to do and effectively cut the grid out there. Uh, that has tremendous power because as then we add Anthony on and Steve and all these other, then we get a really powerful network effect. And so I think there's the potential, and we've got to be careful when we're using networks and network effects because they're very different things in the context of poles and wires and, and distributed networks. But But in terms of this network effect, how do you see the network effect playing in those generation retail and network value streams? Anyone? Well, I mean... Like, like is I mean, that, but, have I, have well, I got that? One question I thought yeah. about, especially with that network stuff... Within, in the, have I got that network. right? Am yeah, I going yeah, mad? Abso- but absolutely. But I mean, I, I, <laughs> one thing that people talk about with network effects is, is that the next, the next place that the conversation goes is then there'll be a natural monopoly. Right? Yes, but that's right. does that necessarily have to be the case? There's no reason why two blockchain providers trying to do similar thing on the on the network, you know, they both develop a customer base just like Coles and Woolies have in the same market, just like Uber and taxis have in the same market. Like they could all coexist, right? I mean, there's nothing that says it's not a winner takes all. There's network yeah. effects, but it's not winner takes all, right? I'd agree with that, and I just think you know, even if you owned, but it's just I just think it's a really interesting point to work out well, what point does your blockchain scale to when you've got that network effect? Like, I don't think there's a huge difference if you had, let's just say, you know, 7% of the Australian market as if you had 70%. I don't think your network effect adds that much, but I think there's a big difference between, you know, 0.2% and 2%. So that's what I, what I, I think there's plenty of room for all of these things, but that, that blockchains do enable the network effect. But I think if you've got a fragmentation on that side of it, at the end of the day, it's got to meet in the middle, doesn't it, uh, Wayne? If I've got... I've got all these providers are saying, oh, yeah, we can help with, you know, you give us signals and, and we'll be able to help you meet your network goals. But the network goes, well, I need a guaranteed, I mean, I'm regulated to guarantee this. So if I've got a bunch of people who are saying that 99.9% of the time we'll do the job for you, that ain't good enough. And so they may just say, no, no, bugger all you guys with your, you know, unless you can give us firm commitments then we're not interested, in which case you could all just pack up and go, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you raise a good point. There's, there's a real interesting discussions going on. There, there's the element that we've had a lot of discussion around peer-to-peer trading from a, a perspective of um, 
trading energy in, a, in almost a wholesale, wholesale market context. And we're seeing lots of, um, you know, second, what I consider secondary markets emerging with, with Power Ledger, with an OC. There'll be others where, as you say, they'll all grow customer bases that can trade with each other. But underlying all of that are the poles and wires businesses that must provide certainty of supply. Um, and what we're trying to work through at the moment is how do we ensure that um, they can leverage these uh, the capacity of these all you know the the demand response the distributed energy resources and still meet their obligations for reliability um, and that's something that's again in a, in, a, in a market that is has been designed to have um, you know retailers focusing one area networks in another we're now at this stage of looking at well what does that mean for the consumer because I've got you know I've got rooftop solar and storage and I've gone to one party to trade energy, but I've now got the network business coming to me asking if I can also help them out. All of those things do still need to be ironed out um, because, as you say, reliability is still something that's, that the network business is being held accountable for. Well, let's I mean, delve into that sort of network business. Um, if you were looking, for example, Wayne, to you know, looking at sort of a strategy approach of, of an opportunity like PowerLedger, where would you be looking at you know, uh, developing? What would your strategy be to try and gain some customers and get traction? If you're targeting or ignoring PowerLedger, but how, how, do you, how do you see the value proposition for targeting that network opportunity you know, if you're a, a, a platform specifically? Do you, do you look at moving towards those negative MPV parts of a network, you know, the bits that have got high OPEX, you know, uh, in regional communities? Uh, do, you, do you target stratas? Um, and do you, the, the question, you know, as someone who's worked in the utilities, do you see there being more of an opportunity in privately owned uh, grids like in Victoria <laughs> um, or grids in, for example, Queensland and Western Australia that are publicly owned where you might be able to for example uh, given that the taxpayers own the grid they might be able to accept some write down on those assets given the reduction in bills they may see how do you, how do you see that market in terms of, of, of managing those network potential network write downs yes yeah, so, so using for, the blockchain sure i mean i mean certainly if i look at the the steps I would take, and similar to, to, to sort of power ledger looking at those embedded networks those microgrids um, that is a natural first step to to really expand um, your footprint. Um, as you grow beyond that, and you look at actually partnering with um, you know the poles and wires businesses, uh, really what I, I, I see there is there are you know if I look at the distributors, especially here in Victoria, I know they're they're trying very hard to look at how do they use what's on the demand side, what's on the consumer side, uh, to help them avoid making new investments in in network infrastructure. Um, and so if you can parcel up a service, you know, blockchain-enabled service, that helps them achieve that, that's, that's going to get traction. I think, um, you know, if you come to the market and you try to go almost against the current network, uh, the network business model, you know, you're going to hit a lot of regulatory challenges um, back to the, the safety and reliability being the priority of the network. So uh, wor- working with the, the network providers would certainly be the way to go, focusing on areas that have natural constraints where there is current consideration for upgrading with infrastructure. Focus on those because you might be able to avoid those investments by 
leveraging what, what can be done on the demand side, on the consumer side. Um, looking at, I, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this, Wayne, and you mentioned their risk. I mean, I think this is that's a really interesting area to to look at how blockchain and some of these these platforms could play out. I mean, one of the areas uh, that that I think it has some potential in, in microgrid applications is um, we know, for example, that there was the bushfires that happened a number of years ago. That uh, and I've got to be pick my words very carefully here. Uh, there was a about a billion dollar payout, and Osnet uh, 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 contributed about two hundred sixty million of that. But they didn't accept any li- liability for that. But they still contributed, and obviously the Victorian government chipped in some money. Um, at the moment, there is no, and there was, frankly, at the time, no product that would enable uh, the shifting, if you like, or uh, the management of that risk. We had very fixed price signals, and I see blockchains and networks as having some opportunities around doing things like. At, at times of different market conditions, so example, periods of high fire risk, you would let the network run uh, run the microgrid, uh, not for maximizing wholesale energy price, but simply for managing risk. And so you could hand the keys uh, to, to the network. Now, at the moment, that's not legal. It's ring-fenced, and that's not how it works. But that things like blockchain would enable you to, to basically keep the assets in the hands of the highest value-adding owner. So so does blockchain and networks have any sort of application in terms of, for example, managing fire risk uh, at times of, you know, at times, you know, only for five to 10 days a year or whatever it is, you would hand the keys to the regulator and say, you know, we, we're not going to fiddle with markets. We're just going to manage risk and then we'll hand the keys back to you. Is there any uh, application there, Wayne, for, for the blockchain, do you think? Look, I've never, I've never given a direct consideration to uh, to that that particular example, but um, but but managing so, things but, like but fire risk yeah, is simply I, I, not, you know, is not priced in. No, uh, but what I was going to say was that um, that is, you know, some of the discussions that are going on is that there there needs to be a mechanism for for the network and, and to an extent to the to the market operator as well, that in times of um, you know instability, in times of risk. Um, they need to be able to have a mechanism to almost override what's going on, um, to be able to draw on draw on capacity or, or, or make decisions, um, you know, outside of the outside of the, the normal the normal circumstances. And I, I personally think this is so great because it's on the this vanguard and, and really does challenge the ideological uh, battle lines where people say, should these things be in public hands or should they be in private hands? Where, where is it most efficient? Here we get to say, no, we actually get to. Um, play horses for courses, right? And we get to say, okay, no, most of the time in normal circumstances, let the market have, have at it. But we are, and you know, right into a smart contract. When the need arises, we will take over and it will be, and, and it's written in in advance. So it's it's not shadow takeover. It's not the thin end of the wedge. It's written into the code under certain circumstances the, the, we will take charge and make that something happen and then hand it back. Now, it's got such elegance to it that, Obviously, politics will be played with it when those conversations start coming up. But it, it seems like a, a new way of dealing with what is really an intractable problem right now, at least in our political sphere. I don't know. I mean, I, I just I just like the idea, and that's the thing that originally attracted me to, to these blockchain things, is the idea that you could always make sure that um, 
the the asset was in the highest valuating owner at any particular market position. Yeah. When, when valuating owner is people not dying in their burning alive in their homes. Well, well the thing is, is you just need that's to put a, you need to you know, that's, define that's it its differently. Own, you need to define it differently. But I mean, even if you even if you were to you know narcissistically uh, ignore all that, it's a billion dollars. That's a huge amount of money. You know that that you can't say, and it's a one in ten year event or twenty year event that that you couldn't have set these things up to lower some of that risk. And, and that, I think, is, is one of the, the potential big applications for blockchain energy. Uh, we're going to have to wrap things up. Um, Wayne, uh, thank you very much for coming into the studio. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, what was, is there an address that people can get the book from? Or uh, where, where can they find the, the digital utility? So any, any good online bookstore. So Amazon or any of the, the usual online bookstores, they are, it is available. Is available as an ebook as well as a paper. It, it is indeed, yes. Okay, yeah. fantastic. Thank you very much. Um, you've been listening to Beyond Zero Show. We've been speaking to Wayne Pales from the Chapel Group. Uh, and uh, if you want to find out a bit more about what we do, get in contact us with us at BZE at bze.org.au. My name's Matt Grantham. I'm Anthony Daniel. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.